Our passage is Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah 1, where Isaiah will present to the people a strong rebuke because they trusted in sacrifices, they trusted in rituals instead of righteousness. They trusted in the rights of the religion instead of trusting in righteousness and understanding true righteousness. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. He says in in chapter 1, verse 1, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In chapter 1, verse 1, he presents the time frame in which he ministered. He ministered about, uh, in the time period, around 740 B.C. to 685 B.C. He had a long ministry, And likely he was executed, if we can trust the extra-biblical information on this, he was executed by Hezekiah's wicked son. Hezekiah is the last king mentioned in verse 1. Executed by Hezekiah's wicked son, Manasseh, before Manasseh's conversion. He was executed as an old man for preaching these truths. These kings, some of these kings, Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah, they were more or less righteous kings, especially Hezekiah. But Ahaz was a wicked king. In Isaiah's ministry, he had righteous kings usually during his prophecy. But it wasn't all pleasant and it wasn't all good. We'll note that what Isaiah experiences, that there is true righteousness in some quarters in the land, is also true of every generation. In every generation, there will be people a few here, some in this other area, who will be walking in truth and righteousness. But this is not necessarily the case with the people generally, both within a nation, within a community, within a neighborhood, and even within a family. Usually, the vast majority of people practice wickedness. We should not think that we live in a time that is better than other times. And we should not think that the Bible and what it says about one age is only true of that age or that period of time and not true of our time. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. There the Apostle Paul clearly tells us that we ought not to be proud and arrogant in thinking that we do not sin like the people of the biblical times. That we're different from them. We're better than they are. We're more sophisticated and intelligent than they are. We're more godly than they are. No. The temptations that we face are the same temptations that they face. And though Isaiah identifies his time period, we ought not to think, well, that's in the Old Testament and that's irrelevant to us. No. Isaiah is explaining that though he is prophesying during the reigns of more good kings than evil kings, yet the situation in the land is very bleak. Very few people believe the message. And God, in fact, told him that that would be the case during his ministry in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Basically, he told him that there would just be a remnant that would believe the vast majority of the people, 90% of the people, would not believe. 
Practically, that's what he said. He said that there would be a tenth that would, but the rest of the people would not. Now, let's see how that is the case. Isaiah, right off the bat, right here immediately in chapter 1, he does as prophets are prone to do. He does what those who have the Word of God are prone to doing. They are commissioned to do it, and Isaiah will do it here. He does what John the Baptist does off the bat. In Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist has a crowd of people, and he doesn't say how much he loves them. He doesn't say how wonderful of of people they are. He doesn't say how much he likes them or loves them. He doesn't say anything like that. What does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus does the same. When Jesus began his public ministry in Matthew 4, verse 17, that those are his same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance assumes that the vast majority of people hearing the word of God don't want to hear the word of God. They don't repent of their sin. They don't live in truth and righteousness. They, in fact, trust in their own goodness or they trust in their rituals and rites. This is why Isaiah starts the way he does. Look at verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He calls on the heavens and the earth to listen, because God speaks. When Isaiah speaks, it's not just his words, it's not mere human words, it is the word of God. The Lord speaks through Isaiah. And if the Lord speaks through Isaiah, heaven and earth must listen. Every part of creation must obey and listen to the word of God. When God speaks, He is the almighty creator. He is the mighty one, God the Lord. Everyone should listen, and no one should reject it. Everyone should give attention. And this is the travesty that he announces. Notice what he announces. This travesty. Sons, I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. He calls them sons. He did call them sons from Deuteronomy 32. He called them sons and his children because he did things that benefited them, did things graciously to them. So he considered them his family, his children, his sons. And he reared them and brought them up. He's the one that provided for them. He gave them life. He provided for their provisions. He gave them spiritual blessings. He announced his word to them. He gave his word, his covenant. He gave him the, the, them the temple rituals. He gave them the t- tabernacle rituals. He gave them the sacrifices. He told them all kinds of things. He gave them the fathers, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Aaron to lead and to guide them. He gave them all that they need. Every spiritual and physical provision that they could ever want, he gave them. He considers them sons. And in verse 3, Israel, he gives them a, a, a term of endearment. He gives them the name, my people. My people. He gave them all of these terms. But what happened? They revolted against me. They do not know. They do not understand. They revolt They don't listen to the Word of God. They rebel against it. And so much that they are compared to domesticated animals. Ox and donkey. Verse 3. The ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. 
Now, all oxen are not naturally inclined to do the will of the master. All donkeys are not naturally inclined, but they can be trained. They can be guided. They, in this case, they were domesticated. They were trained and guided to do the owner and the master's will. These animals, domestic animals, were trainable. But the people were untrainable. They would not listen. They're behaving like wild animals. They're behaving like wild beasts. They're behaving like serpents and lions and wolves. They're not behaving like domestic animals. They're worse than the animals in their behavior, the domestic animals. Verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. He's disgusted. Alas, sinful nation. Yes, you're a nation, but you're not a holy and godly nation. In Exodus 19, God called them to be a holy nation, but they're not. The opposite, sinful They're weighed down with iniquity. It's as though they have a burden on their shoulders and they are uh, crouched over. They are bent over because the burden on their shoulders of sin is so much. They're weighed down with it. They can't move about freely. They are offspring of evildoers. One evildoer produces another evildoer. And in some cases they are doubly dead. And in some cases they are twice as much a son of hell as their predecessor. That's the kind of offspring that they are. Jesus mentioned this in Matthew 23, 15. That they produce disciples, but their disciples are twice as much a son of hell as their teachers. They are offspring of evildoers. Sons who act corruptly. Sons are supposed to do that which is right and pure in the eyes of the Father. They're supposed to obey the Father. They're not supposed to be corrupt. When they are corrupt, they behave like illegitimate children. They behave like wild and unruly children. They don't behave properly. And what have they done? They have abandoned the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel and turned away from Him. They want nothing to do with the Lord. They despise the Holy One of Israel. He is a holy God and they want nothing to do with His holiness. And they turn away from everything. They would rather go headlong and headstrong into their wickedness and corruption than to turn and pursue truth and righteousness and holiness. Verses 5 and 6. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. You have all of these tribulations and afflictions that are on you. They've hit you hard. You understand, you can't be stricken again. What more can I do to make you understand and to realize? Do you not see that your whole person, your whole body and soul is completely uh, wasting away with this disease of your sin? 
How can I get your attention anymore? He describes their sin in, like 2 Timothy 2.17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Their talk, that means their false doctrine, will spread like gangrene. Gangrene, a disease, a fatal disease. There is no survival. It's a cancer and you cannot be healed of it. It's going to take your body away. It will take away everything about you. It's going to make you miserable until your last breath. That's the way God has afflicted them and shown them that their sin is consuming them. And yet, there's no sensitivity. Where will you be stricken again? They're so insensitive to the things of God, they have such a fatal disease in them that there is no resolution. There's no healing to what they are experiencing. There's nothing that's going to help them. Nothing apart from a miracle of God. There is no natural and regular ability to heal them. So, verse 7. The consequence. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. God announces this devastation throughout their land. Devastation throughout their land, and He's calling it being overthrown by strangers, and that there is such uh, debris and desolation all around that it would be like a watchman's hut or a shelter out in the field that nobody wants anything to do with because it's, it's a, a small shack anyways. There's nothing important there. You would only use it for something very small and, and temporary. It's nothing important. So they take and uproot everything else. They destroy all of the valuable possessions and the fruit of your labor. They do all of this and it doesn't wake them up. It does not alarm them. It doesn't call them to repentance. And he says, it's so devastated that it's compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, yet there is some mercy. Notice in verse 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. In Genesis 18 and 19, Abraham, he pled with the Lord, if there were a few righteous people there, that, that God would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities that were practicing wickedness of all sorts, especially sexual sin, and especially homosexuality. This is what they were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah, so blatantly, and God was ready to destroy all of them. Abraham said, Lord, if there are righteous people there, will you do so? So they go from 50 to 10, and they can't even find 10. Righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So God says the whole place and all the people will be completely demolished and wiped out. Fire and brimstone will destroy them all. And that will be a symbol and a sign of eternal punishment. That's what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. But God was merciful in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. In that case, He just took Lot out of Sodom. 
So there was one righteous man. He took him out. And in this case, he's saying this is the way it is even in Isaiah's generation. And by implication, even in our generation. Unless the Lord left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. This is what God does. Yes, people generally, they practice their sin. They love their wickedness. They trust falsely in religious activities, which we will see in verses 10 and following. We will see how they trust in rites and rituals, sacrifices, religious activities, and not righteousness. God's righteousness. They don't trust in that. But few people will understand. Few people will obey. Few people will understand the gospel. That's what he says in verse 9. God is the one who leaves survivors, a remnant, a few chosen ones who will understand, who will be faithful, who will walk the straight path. So let's see what this problem is with the people. Verses 10 to 14. 10 to 15. 10 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give, in, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's not talking to the real Sodom and Gomorrah because they, they've been wiped out for hundreds of years beforehand, in the time of Abraham. Actually, about 1,300 years before the time of Isaiah the prophet. They were already wiped out. He's calling the people of Judah and Samaria, Israel and Judah, these twin nations who have access to the Word of God and who claim to know God, he's calling these people Sodom and Gomorrah. He's giving them an ignoble name. He's giving them a dishonorable name and saying, you think that you should be called Israel. You think you should be called Judah. You think you should be called my people. No, I'm calling you, the vast majority of you who practice wickedness, I'm calling you Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm calling the rulers this, and I'm calling the people this. Both the people and the pastors and the politicians, all of them, they're practicing wickedness. And they deserve to be called Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the rulers should be teaching the people, and the people should be expecting the rulers to do better. But no, they conspire with each other, and they pat each other on the back, and they schmooze each other to do whatever they want to get their own way. That's what they do. So, verse 11. How is it that they use religion for wrong purposes? The rights of religion for wrong purposes. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. Verse 11. 
What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? What's the point? It doesn't matter. I told you to bring animal sacrifices and grain offerings. I told you to do all this. We know this is the case. In the law of Moses, we know that this is the case. Very clearly the case. God commanded them. But what's the point of bringing multiplied sacrifices, the rams and the cattle, and all of the other animals that I asked you to bring, commanded you to bring to me? What's the point of bringing all of these into my courts? Why is it that you come into my courts trampling them, coming with the wrong attitude and coming without repentance? What do I think of the, these sacrifices? Look at 13. They are worthless offerings and they don't need to be brought anymore. The incense, incense that should be fragrant and soothing to the nostrils is an abomination. It's detestable. It's like the, the stench of a carcass. This is what it is to God. Incense that's supposed to be soothing has the, the scent of a dead carcass. It's an abomination. And he says, you practice the new moon festivals, the Sabbath, you, you call assemblies, a solemn assembly. That is, you say, we're going to get serious now about God. So let's have a, a prayer meeting, let's have an assembly, and let's get serious about God. But they don't do it in truth. They don't do it sincerely. That's why he's rebuking them. They're pretending to do that. They pretend. So he says, I hate, and they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. God hates it when there are rites and rituals that are practiced when there is no repentance of sin. He hates it when they have no sincere desire to know God, to love God, to obey God. He hates it when they think that their rites and rituals are just enough and all I need to do is do it for 15 minutes, 15 minutes a week, 30 minutes a week, an hour a week. I just need to do this or that, coming to meetings, offering a prayer, uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, partaking of those kinds of things, getting baptized, doing some other kind of thing that the religious authorities announce needs to be done by the people. And if they just do those things, they will be just fine with God. And then the rest of the time, they can live in wickedness. The rest of the time, God is unconcerned. And the rest of the time, God will not be mindful of what they're doing just as long as they offer the sacrifices. Because God wants animals. God wants the blood of animals. And they convince themselves of this fiction. They convince themselves of this to such an extent that it doesn't dawn on them. Why would the eternal, almighty, invisible God, who is spirit, why would he want the flesh of an animal? Why would he want the blood of an animal? Why would he want the grain offering? Why would he want the salt that's supposed to be on the offerings? Why would he want anything like that? Is he tasting it? Does he get hungry? Why would he? He doesn't want it for himself. He wants it for the people to understand the significance of those rituals, the significance of those sacrifices. He wants the people to, be, to have a constant reminder that they must have faith in the true meaning of sacrifice, which is in Christ. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Understand that this is what is meant by the rituals and types and shadows and all the illustrations of the Bible, the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, we may say, by hyperbole, that they had 10,000 illustrations. They had 10,000 illustrations of faith in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. They had 10,000. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we just have only two. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have these two. They had 10,000 ways to remind them, and we have two. The 10,000 ways to the unbeliever does not help. It makes him a hypocrite. He does the rituals, but he does not practice righteousness. And in the same way, the two. We might say, we might think we're better. We don't have to do 10,000, we just do two. But even the two, for many people in Christian churches, coming to church, it does not benefit them because they don't understand the true meaning of baptism and they do not understand the true meaning of the bread and the cup. They don't understand it. They don't want to understand it. They just do it because they think they're going to pacify God and they're going to convince God that they're just fine people and that they should go to heaven and that God should bless them physically while they're on the earth and before they get to heaven. They want to have their best life now and a better life later. What they experience in, the, in a microcosm here, they want to experience in a micro, macrocosm later. That's what they want. They, they have a little bit of sexual experience now. Oftentimes, it, sexual immorality, what even in marriage, they have that now. And they think that in heaven, it's going to be to the full. And some false religions like Islam and Mormonism, they actually teach that this is what men and women will do for all eternity. Have all of these sexual experiences for all eternity. Or whether that's, even that's in the drinking of the wine, or any of the other pleasures of this world, all of the uh, things that we pursue headlong and headstrong in this world, we're going to have even more of that in the world to come. Right now, we love our dogs and cats, and they are such best friends to us, but then in the world to come, they're going to be right there by our side forever and ever, and we're going to enjoy them to the full. I have, I have one or ten dogs now, but in the life to come, I'm going to have a hundred dogs or a thousand. And they're all going to be around me, and I'm going to enjoy their presence forever. This is what people do. They think like this. Because they're thinking wrongly about the rituals or the rites, the activities of religion. They think wrongly about their significance, and they think that they are just fine in the presence of God. God says in verse 15, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. Isn't it right to pray? Of course it is. Isn't it right to spread out our hands in prayer, symbolizing our dependence on God and coming with empty hands and pure hands, clean hands and a pure heart? It, that's what it symbolizes, that we have nothing and that we come in holiness and righteousness. 1 Peter 2.8 I want the men in every place to lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. That's supposed to be done. We should do things like that. We should pray. But what's the problem? Even though we might do it like that and even multiply prayers, I will not listen. I will hide my eyes from you. I won't listen to your prayers, he's saying. I won't give you what you are asking. Why? Because your hands that you claim 
are clean and pure. You claim that they are innocent, claiming that you need God and you're depending on God to fill your hands and give you what you don't have. They're actually full of bloodshed. You've actually, before you prayed and after you prayed and even multiplied your prayers, you've been doing all kinds of wickedness with your hands throughout the week. And if you do all this wickedness throughout the week with your hands, why should I listen to you? I know, I know what's really inside your heart. I'm not going to listen to your prayers. I won't answer any of your prayers. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18. And 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. After giving instruction to wives... He now addresses the husbands, and in verse 7 he says, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. That's the same thing Isaiah is saying. If you've got wickedness in your life, why should God answer your prayers? He will not. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. How often you pray, how many times you repeat a prayer or a mantra, it doesn't matter. What does God desire then? Verses 16 and following. God desires repentance. He desires repentance. Then the rituals will have a true meaning and they will have uh, significance. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. He expects them to repent, described in various terms. Washing, making themselves clean, removing evil deeds from God's sight, ceasing, stopping to do evil, learning instead to do good. So there is the rejection. When we truly repent... We reject the old ways, the old self. Ephesians 4, 17-24. We reject the old self and then we learn to do good. Justice. Reproving the ruthless and defending the orphan and the widow. Our life manifests different fruits. Instead of manifesting rotten fruit because it's a rotten tree, the old man, the old nature, we now produce good fruit because we are a good tree. Either the tree is evil or the tree is good. Either the tree is rotten or it is fruitful and healthy and sound. It's one or the other. This is how we know. In a nutshell, in verses 16 and 17, he's explaining what Paul the Apostle does in, in Galatians 5, 16 to 26. The deeds of the flesh, verse 16, and the fruit of the Spirit, verse 17. That's what he's doing. He's saying, there should be a contrast in your life. What you used to pursue, you reject. And now you pursue righteousness and truth. You understand what it means to know God. Verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He now says, 
to repent in terms of offering and holding out the forgiveness of sins. Even though people pursue wickedness, it's not as though it's hopeless. It's not as though there is no escape, that there's no deliverance. There is deliverance. The deliverance is offered in the gospel. It's offered in the gospel in that your sins are like scarlet, they are like crimson, but they can be like snow and wool. There can be a transformation. There is, in a sense, a, 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 a very stench-filled and putrid garment that's got red blood stains all over it. The, the filthy garment of Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. Your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That is the case with you and your sins. But God has the miraculous ability. Humans don't have it, but God has the miraculous ability to transform that filthy garment and make it pure and white like wool and snow. God has that ability and He offers that forgiveness. Jesus said, Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. What is it that brings about this cleansing? Repentance. Turning from sin. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said, Mark 1, 15. This is the way that we have cleansing, forgiveness. We are released from the condemnation. And the benefit is held out too. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. If you consent and obey, if you understand these truths and you obey, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, there will be blessing. God will bless us, provide for our needs now and in the life to come. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The people were anxious about their food and their clothing, their longevity, about their life and their circumstances. And He tells them, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That's what we have now, and we'll have it in the life to come. His kingdom. We pursue it now, and we have it in the life to come. However, verse 20 If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Remember, to be devoured by the sword or to experience famine, to have any kind of judgment and punishment, affliction now in this world, is always a token of eternal issues, always of spiritual issues. Jude says this in Jude 7 very clearly. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, their punishment was a symbol of eternal fire, of eternal punishment. And that's what's happening here. When a nation is ravaged and destroyed like this, by the sword, by famine, by warfare, by conflict, by chaos, upheaval within the nation, it is indicative of the wickedness of the people within the nation. But people scoff at this. They criticize it. And they say, no, no, no. You're just exaggerating. These are just human events, natural human events, or natural calamities. They have nothing to do with God. But Isaiah says here, truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Don't be a skeptic. Don't say, no, no, no. It has to do nothing with God. 
No, it does have to do with God. God announces it beforehand so that we understand that it is happening according to His will. He wills for these things to happen. Therefore, we ought to conform our wills to His will. He continues to describe the people and the need for repentance. Verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Notice in this case that they did have in their predecessors, they did have in their forefathers, people who did practice righteousness and who were a model to them. God did not leave them in the dark. He did not tell them to live a certain way and and do so without examples. He gave them examples. He gave them examples of godly people of the past and they know them by name. They know of many of them by name. And they were a faithful people. They were a faithful city. They were to an extent in the past. But now, what did they do? They took these godly examples and they threw them in the, in the dustbin. They threw them away. They wanted nothing to do with them. And they say, yeah, that was good enough for him and for them at that time. But that's not the way it is for now. God changes. God doesn't do it the same way. He doesn't have the same expectations. And so what, does, what do they pursue? They pursue harlotry or prostitution. They pursue injustice. And they pursue murder. This is what they do. So they're not pure anymore. They're not righteous anymore. There's a mixture. And so they have dross and dilution of, with water. Their silver is not pure silver. And their drinks are not pure drinks. Not anymore. Describing them as being mixed with all kinds of pollution and dilution. The rulers are rebels. Companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe. You know, they whisper and they, they, they strike these secret bargains under the table. And, and just uh, take something out of the pocket and put it in somebody else's pocket without anybody listening. They, this, or watching. This is what they do. They love bribes and they chase after rewards. They don't pursue justice. Justice for all. True justice. They don't do that for the orphan and for the widow. In fact, they exploit the orphans and they exploit the widows. Both politicians do this and pastors do this. They exploit orphans and they exploit widows. They do it in many ways, various ways. They will put up a token orphan or a token widow and have some kind of monetary scheme associated with that for their own bank accounts. They will hold forth a widow or hold forth an orphan and look at, say, look at this need, this dire need. And they give people the impression that they're helping the orphan or they are helping the widow, but they're not. They are just fattening their own wallets. That's all they're doing. Politicians do this and pastors do this. So what's the consequence? Verse 24. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your 
dross as with lye, and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. The Lord God, because of this wickedness and hypocrisy, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. When the Lord calls himself the Lord God of hosts, it means of armies. God has heavenly and human armies and even natural armies. He can call up locusts from this or that region. He has heavenly armies, that is angels. He has human armies, whether righteous armies or wicked armies. God even used the Babylonians and the Assyrians to punish the people. He can use wicked armies, and He can also use nature. He can use storms. He can use volcanoes and hurricanes. He can use earthquakes. He can use locusts. He can use flies and mosquitoes. He can use whatever He wants to bring about punishment. Because He is the Mighty One. He has armies to do so. And He says, ah. Who says ah? Someone says ah because He's disgusted. It has filled up inside him so much that he says, Ah, this is what I want to do. This is what I have to do. I will be relieved. Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with light and will remove all your alloy. He says he's going to be relieved and avenge himself on his foes, on his adversaries. People think that because there is a period of silence, Psalm 50, because I, I was silent, you thought I was just like you. Because God temporarily does not inflict punishment, people think that they can twiddle their thumbs, they can pursue their wickedness, they can indulge themselves however they want, and everything will be fine and good. God, if he's up there, and if he's paying attention, maybe, maybe he'll do something about it. But because he hasn't done anything about it, therefore, likely, there is no day of judgment. There is no hell. There is no lake of fire. Don't talk about eternal punishment. None of that kind of thing will happen. Everything will be just fine. But God says, I will be relieved. I will avenge myself. That will happen. Though they, uh, they deceive themselves now, they console themselves now into thinking, nothing is going to happen, it will happen. But with the people, God will take from the mass of people a remnant, and He will purify them. He's going to smelt away the dross as with lye, lye or soap. He, he will remove all your alloy. The impure parts of the metal... He's going to remove. And then when he removes the impure parts of the metal, he will have the pure metals of gold and silver. And when he has them, they will be righteous judges, righteous counselors. And then the people will be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. True Zion, they will live up to their name. True Jerusalem, they will live up to their name. True holy city, they will live up to their name. When God miraculously removes the wicked from among us and He sets us apart and makes us like pure silver and pure gold in His sight. Indeed, verse 27. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. 
God's justice and God's righteousness is what will redeem them, and it takes place by means of their repentance. God's righteousness by means of their repentance, then they will be truly Zion, truly Jerusalem. But verse 28, transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord shall come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. And the strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. The transgressors and sinners who refuse repentance, they will come to an end. They have forsaken God, God will forsake them. They have, in verse 29, gone to these oaks and gardens. They've gone to these places where shrines of idols are found. And they have trusted in their idolatry instead of trusting in the Lord. But God says He's going to do away with all these places. They're all going to be destroyed. He's going to do away with all of them and their idols too. The idols who have eyes but can't see, who have ears but can't hear. They have mouths but they cannot speak. Everyone who trusts in them will become like them. He's going to get rid of all these people and all of these idols. And even the strong man and the work of the strong man will become tender and a spark and will burn together and no one will quench them. We might be wise in our own eyes now, but we'll be shown to be fools on the day of judgment. We might consider ourselves rich now, but we'll be considered fools and poor people on the day of judgment. We might consider ourselves strong and mighty now, but on that day of judgment, we'll be weaklings and wimps. And we're going to shrink away in shame on the day of judgment. Shrink away to destruction from Hebrews chapter 10, 35 to 39. That's what will happen on that day of judgment. And there will be none to quench it. That fire will last forever and ever. It's the lake of fire he's explaining here. The lake of fire is what awaits. So what should we do? Let us trust truly in the gospel of Christ. Believe truly in his gospel. Believe in the reason why he died on the cross. He died so that we die to sin and live to righteousness. He died to take our punishment, to take our curse upon him. He died so that when we believe in Him and turn away from sin, we can be forgiven of sin and delivered from the wrath of God to come. That's why He died on the cross. And anything that we do, any ritual, any good deed, anything that we might imagine, any human invention, any of the inventions of clergymen and ministers and pastors, anybody, anything that they invent that contradicts this Bible is worthless. But even the things that God has commanded for us to do in the Bible, the rituals of the past, the rites and the rituals, the 10,000 of the Old Testament, they were worthless unless they had faith in Christ. In the same way, when we partake of baptism or the Lord's table, when we partake of prayer even, or reading of the Bible, 
If we do not have faith in Christ, it's also worthless. It's also no good. It's also producing a stench rather than a fragrant aroma to God. Let's have true faith. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that all of us, each one of us, would turn away from sin. And Father, we pray that we will take refuge in you, understanding that only in the Lord is truth and righteousness and justice. Only in the Lord is salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. We take refuge and delight in nothing else and in no one else, and not even any of our religious activities and affairs. Nothing whatsoever. We pray that we'll only trust in you through your Son, Jesus Christ. In the name of Christ, amen.